Hey everyone, welcome to the very first episode of our podcast, Human All to Human. Our first topic is actually living with the human condition, and I think this is an increasingly relevant and relatable topic, especially during the pandemic, as we've had the most amount of time to ourselves, which includes time for our thoughts and our doubts. And I think it's an incredibly interesting topic because it's something that everyone faces, right? The complexities and the nuances of human the human condition extend as far as why am I here to what am I doing here and you know reconciling the reality that there may not be a reason I'm here and and today we've brought on three guests who uh, seek a higher power of faith-based answer to their dilemma and we're going to talk about exactly how they live with the human condition and what that really means to them in general so without further ado I'd like to introduce the first three guests thanks all right, cool. Uh, Brent Binder, and I guess the relative details uh, for this discussion are uh, born, born into a Catholic family, always had an existential lust for the esoteric and, uh, and, and continued on through philosophy and most major world religions till I eventually settled on at this current time period, uh, universal Sufism or just Sufism. And, uh, and that's where I'll be speaking from through whichever questions arise or whichever, uh, whatever topics we're hitting. Yeah, uh, my name is David. I was born into a Christian family. Um, I am also a recent grad, uh, just graduated from Penn State. So I'm just uh, working now in Minneapolis. I, yeah, have... I guess I considered myself a Christian for most of my life, but I didn't start to take my faith more seriously until um, I got into college. And that's also where I started wrestling more with, um, I guess, the deeper questions about meaning and purpose in life. But yeah, that's me. I'm uh, I'm just some guy. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to hear your thoughts. Uh, John, how about you next? Yeah, um, I guess I'm also at the age where it's relevant, where I recently graduated from, like, <laughs> I guess the majority of this call. I recently graduated from UCLA, um, so I'm working now in LA, and my spiritual background is, I also grew up going to church as well um, in southeastern Pennsylvania. It was a non-denominational one, and so obviously when you grow up going to church, you don't really choose to go because, you know, you don't disobey your parents in that way at that age um but i think i would say the the common phrasing being i made my faith my own probably around seventh eighth grade where i started to think about like why am i going to church on sunday and just doing all these random things um and then i would say college has also been a huge growing um season in my life since then and of course you know uh these kinds of topics really interest me in, in that I think Christians, uh, by definition, are interested or, you know, have to do with a lot of spiritual and or like metaphysical things. And so, yeah, Chris and I have talked about various things over the years. I think only recently has it become a little more um, mature, <laughs> so to speak. But yeah, that's a little bit about me. Thank you, John, and thank you, um, Dr. Binder and David, for giving those splendid introductions. And yes, I'm very excited for this conversation, just to dive right into the crux of it, living with the human condition, because we're born into a world with no seemingly apparent meaning innate within us, which which really goes to show that either it is created, provided, or maybe it doesn't exist at all, right? And so, obviously, some form of uh, religion or spirituality provides that background for you three. And I, I'd like to, you know, honestly hear more about it, if possible. Well, it, it became very apparent that religion was not the answer for me, but it just seemed to be like 
being the youngest in the family and just kind of going along with it. It felt like everyone around me was Catholic. So it was just not a choice at that age. And I guess choice becomes um, one of the other moderators said it, the, the, uh, the third gentleman who spoke a very beautiful phrase of I made my faith my own. And that comes that that seems to be the the spark that exists in some people, but not everybody to continue to seek and continue to uh, look at answers or look for answers. And and while the uh, the um, the main the main topics that you have, uh, uh, the main philosophies, if we're looking at Nietzsche, if we're looking at existentialism, absurdism, nihilism, all addressing this, how do you live with the human condition? Um, seems to exist in some people in an immature way right from the very beginning. And uh, personally, my experience was I thought it was cool that priests were ringing bells and lighting candles and passing out snacks in the middle of this ceremony that involved singing and everyone moving in procession to line up and take a drink from a cup. Like the whole thing was wild to me and fascinating. And um and so obviously some people fall right into their religion and they go, this is how I deal with the human condition. I'm just going to do this with everyone else. And, and we take it as blind faith. And then uh, it's the, there seems to be um, a spark within some people that say, what else is there besides this religion that I was born into? And then this amazing amount of or this amazing time period of life occurs where you're um, balancing philosophy and religion, perhaps where philosophy is this uprooting of ideas and personal values and then you have this um this foundational worldwide accepted concept of religion where everyone shows up and does the same thing and so you kind of bounce them back and forth for a little while like young says it, it's it's to create a third path if you can hold two paths in your in your vision for long enough and concentrate on them for long enough. If you have a decision to make, whatever it is, if you have two ideas, in this case, it would be philosophy and debating and thinking using logic, rational, use your rational mind using words um, versus this idea of ceremony, which is people singing and dancing or eating things or whatever it is. And uh, if you can hold those two things, eventually they just collapse into one. And then, uh, and then, like our friend said, you make your faith your own. And perhaps some people settle in another religion or they go back to um, their original religion or they find that a philosophical group. Um, but, the, but the true answer to your question, how do we deal with the existence? It's probably different for everybody, right? I mean, like I like to sing and dance, but that doesn't mean that's right for anybody else. Dr. Bender, thank you for sharing. And I, you know, before we let David and John chime in, I completely agree because, as you mentioned, some people take a very immature approach to it. And while I don't think that swearing off a faith-based, religious-based, or spiritual-based answer to our existential questions, right, is, is wrong, there are a lot of implications and consequences that arise that many people don't reconcile with when they do swear off these higher powers, these religions, or these faith-based uh, answers because frankly doing so brings up a lot of incompatibilities and um, you know complications with our existence because it's something that we fundamentally have predicated values on for you know all of human existence most of human existence right and to to bring the topic to a quote before we let uh, John and David chime in right now we're looking at of the famous quote God is dead by Nietzsche and I'm not going to read this out loud but uh, to all the viewers out there and all the listeners out there 
it famously starts god is dead and it's almost a lament from nietzsche like a lamentation right and he wasn't uh, religious and he actually was sort of against religion at times right to to put it simply but he realized that for modern day science and modern day rationalism to come and wipe out the values that uh, religion has created almost has created this uh, the lar- the greatest exp- uh, existential crisis known to man right nihilism or the lack of values because without being given values humans have to create them and with no foundation to base it on with religion gone there is obviously um you know a whole plethora of questions that arise everywhere from ethical questions like is stealing right or wrong is murder right or wrong to existential questions like what am i doing here and why am i here right and so it's it's a completely it's it's a it's my one of my favorite quotes and i think it's very telling about the whole situation that you just mentioned dr Minder. but please uh john and david please jump in um <laughs> i guess i just i something that i kind of wanted to uh point out was um i do want to recognize the fact that me kind of being born into a christian family and being born like here in the u.s like i recognize that that may have influenced me to i guess yeah or yeah like encourage me to have a certain set of beliefs right off of the bat um uh but i i also do want to point out that like a lot of people might say or give the argument oh like depending on where you're born or like where you know what your upbringing is what your background is like that your culture your background might have an effect on your worldview um but really if that's something that you're worried about then we should be more suspicious about the idea that you know values are just constructs of of culture and therefore like they're relative and i think that that idea is like really popular um today uh but the problem is like if you're going to resist um you know the world views that you that people claim like exert like a really uh big effect on other people because we're just you know cultural sponges soaking up the ideas of what um you know those around us are telling us then the idea that uh value is like relative that's actually the one to resist um and really comes to down to yeah like you might be influenced by uh where what you were born into but eventually like we all kind of like john was describing it pretty well but just like kind of when he said like making his faith his own like we do come to these conclusions ourselves no yeah that's um that that's 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 definitely very interesting and then john you know before before you speak, I think something I wanted to bring up, we were having a conversation, you know, God, I think it was several weeks ago, and then we were talking about this very same thing. And then, you know, I mentioned, I, I was surprised that people, you know, throw off um, the idea of God so easily. And I believe you said to me exactly, you know, what I tell people is, how could you forsake them that easily because of the implications? And, and I think, you know, you put that very um, eloquently, and then, you know, very excited to hear your thoughts on this right now. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I've, I've read this quote before in, in a similar context and saying, as Nietzsche, as far as I understand, as he says this, it's he, yeah, as you said, is lamenting the fact that suddenly when people become um, or choose to be like hyper-rational, where they believe that the world is rational and that's all there is, that's the only dimension to it, then you come upon this problem where uh, there seems to be no more reason or meaning, um, which 
for most of human history, you know, people ascribe that to God or people ascribe that to a power that's higher than themselves, that's imbued meaning into humanity. And I think that is, yeah, I, I think I'm in the same boat where I think um, if, if we're too, or if we're so foolish to dismiss the idea of God, however you want to label that, like a higher power or something else, uh, then you come upon this thing where it's basically saying that, okay, we are like humanity is all that there is. And the fact that we're even conscious to like discuss it is all that there is. And that's like a huge problem um, because that does not match up with our, I think, experience and the almost um, like soul deep feeling that we have that there is meaning. And so, you know, I was, <laughs> Chris was telling me a lot about absurdism not too long ago. And so I decided to go onto Wikipedia our nice, reliable friend and kind of look into that. And they start off saying that, yeah, absurdism is the, the dilemma or the uh, tension that you get where humans are always looking for meaning and the universe seems to not offer any. And I thought that was interesting because that's assuming, that's coming from the assumption that the universe is like this impersonal force or that there is no greater power, right? The universe is just a physical place and that God is dead. Like God is no longer in that picture. Um, personally, I think most people cannot live by that belief. Like you don't practically live in a world where you believe God is, or there is nothing more that there is no meaning to your morality or to your standards or to your life, right? Like, I think we'll probably touch on this further, but if that was true, there is no difference in what you do in your lifetime before you die. So I think I'm not an <laughs> expert by any means in philosophy, but that often leads down people down the road of thinking like, yeah, why, why not just kill yourself? Because it's all the same in the end. But for me, I think, yeah, if we take that assumption that God is dead, that is a logical route to go down and, and it's logically coherent, right? It makes sense as long as you assume that God is quote, quote, dead. But I, I think as, as a Christian, right? Like I would back up a bit and say, okay, but let's talk about that first assumption. Like is you know, their higher power is the universe really just all there is in in personal force. Right. And I'm I'm glad you really touched on that. I mean, the whole point of this podcast is, you know, practically living with the human condition. And while, you know, I may not be religious, you know, and then you may, excuse me, you may be religious. We all have our different ways of coping with this uh, human condition. And then before we go um, any further, Dr. Bender, I know you mentioned, I believe you said Sufism. Now, I'm not exactly aware what that is. Do you mind talking a little bit about that further? Yeah, I'm curious. Please, please share. <laughs> uh, Sufism is mysticism, uh, which uh, is just another word, another ism. But uh, there's a Christian mysticism, and a, uh, there's a um, a Muslim mysticism. There's a Jewish mysticism, uh, and it's it's part of a. It, it could be part of many world religions that is like this. Um, it's probably like the weird people in the church or in the temple in the mosque who were just absolutely struck by um, the profound beauty in the world and the synchron and the patterns of nature. And, and it's, it's almost like, I would have to say that a Sufi is someone who seeks that constant meaning, but also finds it any everywhere. So the, everyone is your murshid or your teacher. Um, you know, the pages of the Bible are like leaves of a tree. It's really a, um, a it's, it's almost like the exact opposite of absurdism as, as the more I read about absurdism, just looking into that concept for this, I, it was apparent how, um, uh, how much of a contrast it was to 
what it feels like in in my in my neurological net of ideas and experiences and everything that has ever come through um, my filters. I look out and as a biology major and as a scientist primarily would constantly see patterns. And to me that proved meaning inherently in life. It's see, and I, I don't want to say proof because you can't prove it, but to me that was the resemblance of something that was beautiful and something that was intelligent and something that was both compassionate and vicious and something that was um, eternal yet instant. And it, 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 in a mystical sense, it holds all of the paradoxes of life. And so in a way, absurdity is a paradox. And, and in a way, because Sufism is so inclusive, you could still subscribe to absurdity theory, not believe in God, and yet still be a Sufi, um, just because you're in that realm of trying to seek and trying to understand. And it's, it's that impulse, like you're trying to feed a hunger in your belly or a procreational impulse in your genitals. It's the same impulse within some part of our neurological landscape or probably uh, our electromagnetic man's, uh, landscape that involves the the um, the waves coming from the heart, the waves coming from the brain, but biologically, it seems like there's enough people talking about this that it's a part of the human condition, and therefore we're talking about it, obviously. And so that's Sufism. It's the paradox. It's it's almost exactly opposite of absurdism, but yet still includes it um, in a in an absolute absurd way. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, absolutely. I, you know, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because. You know, so so one of the progenitors of um, absurdism, right? So Albert Camus, mm -hmm. he he's um, I would say very very in tune with um, nature in the sense that he 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 wrote one of his first books, The Stranger, was about a man who was very strictly indifferent to anything that society could have placed on him, right? You know, it was it was it, reading the book, it's almost impossible to prescribe any sort of values to his character, but he, you know, reacted very intensely to physical aspects of nature, right? In the book, you know, this is not really a spoiler, it's, it's the point of the whole book, he kills another man simply because it was too sunny, it was too hot, and, and then, you know, the sun got in his eyes and he pulled the trigger, right? And the whole question <laughs> of the book is, yeah, it, exactly, it's, it's absurd. The whole question of the book is, is basically trying to get the reader to prescribe a reason for his murder when, when there are none. So, and I think, you know, what uh, Albert Camus was really trying to emphasize with the idea of absurdism, and I think this, you know, fits perfectly with your, with your, your contrasting in Sufism, right, and how it could be the opposite, but it's inherently similar, is that, you know, what, what he believed in absurdism was that the thought that there could be something higher than what is currently present, the, um, sort of obviates uh, the current human's ability to live authentically. And then so, you know, the point of the absurdism is not to have hope in the sense that you should not hope for anything, you know, past your, until your death, when, so then you must live uh, life as authentically as you can. And then, you know, the, the symbol of absurdism, and I want to touch on this, you know, later on, but this is a great point to bring it up, is the myth of Sis uh, Sisyphus, the, the, the man who's condemned to push the rock up the hill only for it to fall back down again. And then, you know, in the end of his first book, The Myth of Sisyphus, he goes and claims that one must imagine Sisyphus happy because if he was not happy in that situation, well, that has really grave uh, implications on it all. And, and so um, 
uh, what I also wanted to get out of this is so Dr. Bender, what, what does that, um, what, what kind of implications does that say about your belief in a higher power? So, so does that, does that imply that there is one or there isn't one? What, what are the dynamics right there before we let uh, David and John jump in? Um, well, just specifically, do I believe in a higher power? Yes. Yes. The, yes, I do. Okay. And then does that, you know, does that take in a certain form or like in, in through your lens, does that, is, is the higher power very general? Uh, I'm, I'm curious about, about how you sort of. Oh, the this. lens. Yeah, yeah. The lens. I like that. I like the way you put that. Um, yeah. To me, it's amazingly geometric and, um, and, uh, and it's like, it's like not, it's eternal, but not like duration of time, more like outside of time. So like, it's a dimensional thing, like a hyper-dimensional thing um, where it's like, it, it's, it fringe sounds like where it's, um, where it's almost right there. Like you can grasp it at any time, but then when you pay attention to it too long, it, it disappears. And, and then you call it a mystery. And then it becomes so obvious that, you know, what it's like, it was right in front of you with um, a lesson or a teacher, your life experience will, will show up and at your door and it's, it's right there. Or it's, or it's the, like, in the, the one thing I loved about absurdity really rang true was the, um, what was it? It was like the, the, uh, the universe's silence in response. Yes. And yeah. uh, I thought, I think that's so poetically beautiful. And of course, um, you know, the, you know, like Nietzsche and, um, uh, Kierkegaard, these guys are, you know, they were all madmen. They were like raving <laughs> lunatics, just writing books by candlelight in the, you know, in a, in a very different time. And that's why this, their ideas have been so influential and important for us to, to just stand on their shoulders and think about uh, in terms of what they've um, and what they were able to accomplish. And uh, so, yeah, so that, that's the lens for me. I mean, it was shaped very much by uh, heavy use and experimentation of psychedelics. Um, it was shaped by uh, heavy use of um, uh, reading uh, sacred texts from many different religions and, uh, and going through the philosophies as if as a timeline or like a yearbook. And, oh, here's what here's what uh, Jung was saying about it. And, you know, and listening to even Jordan Peterson, uh, a contemporary, uh, reflecting all of these ideas into modern society. We're in this amazing time period where we can all discuss about it, you know, from all different parts of the country right now on a podcast, which is amazing that you're bringing that into this as, as part of the pandemic and people really having the time now to look at this, especially if you're an extrovert and you process information on the outside. <laughs> um, introverts have been doing this since, you know, they, they, they just have always been doing this and uh, will always do this. So uh, I, I think that answers the question. Yeah. Okay, before hey, I, Brent, I, had a, I had a question, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, John. Yeah. I, as, you, as you talk about the podcast and the fact that we can do it all uh, across the nation, I'm, I'm a heavy introvert or extrovert, and I really wish we could have this conversation in person. But I'm just really curious. You mentioned in talking about Sufism that you see beauty um, and almost like a geometry or in all of things of the, this physical universe and even yeah. non-physical things. So yes. for you or for Sufism, is that beauty, do you ascribe that to a, a thing outside of that 
created or you know physical thing do you ascribe that to a creator or is it the how do you explain that or is that just how it is right that's just how it is is that if it's did something create it or is that just how it is right is that the question yeah yeah like how or how do you look at that yeah okay so um it, it almost kind of relates into the extrovert introvert idea where how you process information and how we share it um when you look at the spectrum of a narcissist and an empath and uh empaths uh if you're able to bring your mind to this concept, I just would invite you to consider the possibility that empaths can feel things other than themselves. And uh, so there's a sense of um, unity that can be accomplished when you know, so like morals and ethics become obvious. It be, it's like, there's not even a question. There's no need to write any rules on the wall. We just love each other and treat each other with kindness. And so what I hear in the question of, do I believe that there's a creator is the beauty of creator or is that just the way that it is? I also hear in that question, well, what about the things that are not beautiful? And so um, do, are they created as well? Or is, or is tragedy just something that is also apparent because you look around and there's a balance, there's night and day. And, um, and so the easy answer to the question, although it's, it's not easy it's it's i can say yes i do attribute the beauty and also the tragedy to a creator however i cannot um consciously uh, i there's no conception of that in my mind i don't believe that i could ever reach any kind of consciousness that allows me to really really know or really prove or really identify or all the things that we use i think that are illusions concepts of ourself concepts concepts of time that um are only real because we think that they're real for example and and uh and so that's the difference between a, a philosophy and a religion in all religions the common background uh, uh backbone is a belief you at some point have to take a leap in order to be religious you have to take a leap i'm not saying that any of you have to do this or i'm not saying that anyone has to do this but my understanding was is that to move from philosophical or scientific mindsets into a religious mindset it really just takes a belief and you don't need any book or you don't need any religion to do that religion is just the tool that humans use um to get to that point of uh dealing with the human condition I, well, uh, yeah, and then David, I'm sorry, but before I let you jump in, so when you mentioned Kierkegaard, I'm very happy that you did that because it, one of the, you know, the, one of the thrusts of his point is that he was so uh, agonized, right? He was so yeah. much in anguish over the fact that he could not understand that world. So he just, you know, said, it, we must ascribe it to the leap of faith. And I think, you know, that's a very, it's, um, it's, 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 it's a very, how it should, it's an elegant way to describe that and then it's it's one of it's a profoundly human thing to do right something that we don't understand that we must take a leap and i think um i think it's incredible that that you know as i mentioned at the beginning strict rationalists in their own way also have a very tenable position where they have to take a leap of faith and then they would look <laughs> so contemptuously upon others right it's 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 a bit confusing to me but but david yeah, man, let you speak, so yeah <laughs> David, if you want to have some input, please do before I start interrupting again. <laughs> yeah, um, I guess uh, I guess I do want to say, like, on the topic of like that leap of faith, like I do think, yes, um, 
absolutely there is definitely a leap of faith that has to be made um you know to i guess believe in what things like me and john might believe in like as religious people um because at the end of the day like there is no one thing there is no one argument or nothing i can say or do or anyone can say or do to completely a hundred percent like convince with you know guaranteed fact and truth that what we believe in is true and it's fact um you do have to have a certain level of faith in order to you know uh accept what we believe in as true that being said you can you know you can have good reason uh to make that leap of faith you can do your own research and come to the conclusion you can have good arguments for it but at the end of the day yes you do have to um there is some faith involved um i also kind of wanted to touch on i guess this topic of beauty before we kind of move away from it um i i guess like what i believe in uh when it comes to like beauty uh is for me like it's it's a lot easier to s propose that um beauty this idea of beauty fits it fits better in a world like with god um than one without god because in like the secular worldview um that's more like naturalism where like god doesn't exist and you know everything in the world is just a product of just completely random uh mindless you know evolutionary processes um and according to that you know evolution runs on the track of survivability um so then the big question becomes like well if everything's driven by this mechanism of evolution that's just trying to increase survivability then how could it possibly produce um, artistic beauty when aesthetics don't seem to contribute to survivability. So basically, like, why is there, why is there so much beauty in, like, uh, creatures, living beings that can appreciate, uh, beauty when it doesn't contribute to human survival? Um, because if everything was just the result of survival, then it, you know, it seems unlikely that we would yield things that, or values that uh, are considered beautiful, but aren't necessarily survival conducive. Um, you know, because then, like, why isn't everything just, like, uh, you know, gray and, like, practical and functional? Um, but, yeah. No, David, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, that might be one of the, you know, um, inconsistencies, I'd say, with strict rationalism. And it's something that, you know, these proto-existentialists like Nietzsche and then these existentialists like Sartre and uh, Beauvoir, they, they try to, you know, step a little bit away from that, right? And then they're, they're, they're not exactly fans of rationalism, but they're not exactly, well, they're not religious either. So, so you know, you know it's, it's really that um, position, that position that we're in and that they were in, that they were trying to figure out, you know, how could we appreciate the earth without you know, taking a strict leap of faith. And I think it's um, a great discussion to have. So, you know, with that, I sort of want to slightly move forward a little bit in our topic and talk about, you know, the meaning of life. So, you know, from a non-religious perspective, as, as we established, there, there might not be one at first glance, right? And I want to, and I want to address, you know, this from a religious perspective, because it's not exactly easier. 
right? And now, now from a religious perspective, you know, from the Christian standpoint in particular, you might have a meaning in life. And then, you know, John, I know we've discussed about this part of your meaning of life is to spread the word, right? To spread, spread the word of God um, to others. But that doesn't necessarily make your, well, I'm, I'm going to use this word job any easier, right? Just because you have this predetermined meaning ascribed to you, right? That you follow doesn't make your life any easier, right? And I'm sure there's many things that have happened and are happening that really throw your standpoint out of view. So I, I want to talk about this, you know, so that's, let's say that's the end point. Like, um, let's say from my novice perspective, that's the end point for, you know, the meaning of your life. And is to you know spread the gospel, spread the word, and then you know live, live from that perspective. And then how do we as humans you know sort of reconcile that in between? Because we can't spend every hour of the waking day doing that. And you know, please enlighten me if I'm getting anything you know categorically incorrect. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up, and I think that is a very sobering look at at, at life. And if even if you have uh, even if you can presuppose that you have meaning imbued onto you as a human, yeah, it's not so much that we're all so philosophical that you can think about that 24-7. At least most people can. But the interesting thing is um, I don't think that's how humans are. Um, I'm thinking of a man uh, by the name of Paul from the New Testament in the Bible, historical figure. Um, he's credited with spreading Christianity to vast um large swaths of the Roman Empire at the time, uh, while Christianity was still persecuted. And if you study his letters that he wrote to the different churches that he started, and you study uh, his life, he was heavily persecuted. Uh, there's actually one story, or one account where he goes into a city, he tells people about, you know, the gospel, the word of God, or of Jesus Christ, and, and then they stone him, they think he's dead, and then he's not dead. So he gets up and walks back into that same city that stoned him. Um, to meet up with the church that was there. And the question you have to ask is like, oh my gosh, like how can a single person uh, possibly get through that? Say, I ask themselves like, what is my life? <laughs> and then continue, um, you know, with his purpose. And, and Paul talks about that a lot where he has to constantly, I, I imagine him having a lot of almost like sleepless nights or, or just constantly making sure like, am I, is what I'm doing, is the purpose that I've been sent here for, like, is it valid? Is it actually true? And he kind of addresses that in, in one of the, the epistles and one of his letters where he says, if, if Jesus Christ, if our Lord uh, Jesus did not rise from the dead or didn't come back to life, then we are like the greatest fools or like our faith is basically forfeit. And I think we talked about a little bit about this, Chris, but I think for a normal person to be able to go through the the normal portions of life to go through the ups and downs, ask themselves, what is life when things are difficult? They have to have something that they can anchor themselves on. And for Christians, that is the resurrection of, of Christ. That is that weird, crazy, absurd um, claim that Jesus made that he was God incarnate and he was also human and that he died and came back to life, giving him the credit to say what he did. Um, I think for me personally, Right. It's not I'm not so amazing, you know, to say that, yeah, 24 seven of my life, I'm thinking about this God given purpose of, of spreading the word. But that is the goal that I am working towards. And, and I, I'll I think a, not a correction, but a, a little thing that I would caveat with the original comment is that, you know, it is possible for people to have their lives completely consumed by X, Y and Z. And in my case, I think a lot about, you know, Christians or 
or different missionaries from the past where, yeah, it seems you look at their life and like Mother Teresa, for example, you look at their life and all you see is this obsessive drive to do what they think they've been called to do. So I think it's possible. Uh, are most people there? Most likely not. But for those who have quote, quote, made it or who are further along in the path, for Christians, they're going to be pointing to, to Jesus Christ. That is like the, the stable rock and anchor, right? That belief that he died and, and came back to life. If that's not true, then, you know, <laughs> we're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> so that's a, a long-winded way to, to kind of answer that. I guess, you know, I, to, to, that, that, that makes a lot of sense, right? And I think, you know, one of my, and then I, I touched on this before, right? Man gets into a habit of living before they get into a habit of you know, having consciousness. And I think, you know, it's an incredible question to have. And, and thank you for enlightening me on, on, on that aspect. And, you know, I wanted to present, you know, and wanted to get your thoughts on this, obviously. And then, you know, Dr. Binder seems like, you know, an expert on this topic, but I wanted to present how um, existentialists and absurdists really view the meaning of life, right? So, you know, this is not, you know, what I'm about to describe is, is not strictly how I view it, just, just as a description. So for um, proto-existentialists or existentialists like Nietzsche, who are not religious, because you can be a religious uh, existentialist, they believe that um, even though there isn't any inherent meaning in life, there's a way that you can, you know, sort of create your own meaning. And then for Nietzsche, that was, you know, he took a little more pessimistic um, attitude towards it, right? He said that all of society's values are, you know, inherently based on what he called back then master versus slave morality, in the sense that, you know, people looked at another so the slaves as he would call it right not you know not strictly slaves but you know the people who did, lacked for instance wealth would look at people with wealth and, and and automatically you know ascribe evil and inherent badness to wealth and then they sort of categorize that as you know bad morality and and then so and then what Nietzsche responded to this with he said this you know sort of puts what humans think the meaning of life is in, in, you know, in a sort of crisis mode, because nobody is living authentically if everyone is living off of pre, uh, predetermined and uh, predetermined meet, uh, senses of morality and predetermined senses of meaning instead of going out and creating their own values, right? So what he prescribed was that the human meaning was to um, really achieve what he called the ubermensch, the superman or the overman. And, you know, what, what that means is he want, he envisioned a man in which all values were created from his own, right? And none of them were prescribed to him already. And so he was able to live most authentically. And that's what he envisioned uh, the meaning of man to be in a sense. You know, I hope I'm not uh, butchering this. I'm sure uh, Dr. Binder will correct me in, in some things later, but but in, from an absurdist standpoint, right? They start from the same, um, they, they serve from the same beginning, the same assumption that there is no meaning in life, right? And then they, they believe, you know, the existential point of view that you can create your own meeting is also in suspect, right? Because that inherently implies maybe uh, that the world is not indifferent where they suppose it is. So, you know, what they prescribe is that you must always hold the tension of the absurd uh, in, in your head, right? You must always recognize this. And then I have another quote um, sharing through my screen. It's, it's um, one from uh, the myth of Sisyphus. Uh, it begins with men to screen the inhuman Right. And then I'm not going to read this all, but but essentially, you know, and I'm, and I'm sure this 
is very, this this is very true among all people, even religious people. He talks about a moment where you know you pass a man talking on the telephone behind a glass partition, and then you know, I'm going to read some of the quote. You cannot hear him, but you see his uncomprehensible, dumb, dumb show. You wonder why he is alive. The discomfort in the face of the man's own humanity, this incalculable tumble before the image of what we are is also the absurd and then he believes that you know that not everybody lives with this tension all the time but when they do and then when they begin to recognize this that's you know when the crisis all starts and he believes that you know in spite of this the only thing that you can be sure of is living the mo the best that you can despite the fact that there is no meaning he, he underlines this and calls this uh, man's rebellion and so that's what i wanted to tell you guys about you know in a very long-winded way what the existential and absurdist point of view is and i think what all of us can agree in is uh, with is that nihilism is fundamentally incompatible with the human condition yeah, that was wonderful. I really, uh, I, I, I look at everything you say with uh, great um, admiration, because you're, you're really into this, you're pulling all these ideas together and comparing and contrasting, you know, you are living out the experience that these men were talking about, you know, 100 years ago, or a 1000 years ago. And, and so to me, that's beautiful. And the beauty doesn't have to be a colorful sunset. It could be a mind searching for meaning through all of the other people who have been searching through meaning. And, uh, and I, so I wanna make it clear too, you know far more about uh, the historical context of these philosophical views than I do. So there's no need for correction from me. <laughs> and uh, the reason for that is because at the end of this phone call, we are all gonna go get something to eat maybe go to the bathroom, maybe do whatever it is in our minds that, um, that, we've, that are uh, part of that uh, procreational impulse. You're all young men in your 20s. You know, the procreational impulse is strong within you at this point. And so like, you know, talking about doing, uh, being completely engulfed by God or being engulfed by these ideas and thoughts all the time, is also not compatible because eventually you have to go go eat and so in in a, a muslim would sit down in front of their meal and they would just say bismillah which is we begin remembering that this is god you know and then they they leave and they clean their dishes bismillah they're cleaning their dishes and saying this is god and so you know i feel this like that angst as uh, as an existential crisis that that twinge inside of you when I'm brushing my teeth, you know, did I do this on my left side long enough? Is the is reality going to collapse into a hyperdimensional hole if I don't clean my teeth properly enough? And so, some people are are blessed or cursed by that idea, and uh, and it's beautiful to see and to have these ideas. And so, everything that you just said, I I admire so much, and I'm thankful for listening to that, and it really reflects on the experience of. Um, of uh, uh, surrender. And so <clears throat> as a major component in, in how I practice, this idea of surrender has to do with, uh, we said leap of faith before, but that almost has too much, too much weight to it already because we're using the word faith and leap of faith kind of seems cliche, but just making a choice. And neurologically, when you make a choice, it changes the way that your brain operates and changes the way that the neuroplasticity will guide future decisions. And so uh, you're in the hallway of mirrors in your mind, all of us right now, which is beautiful. And also uh, in the hallway of uh, mirrors in our hearts, which is 
trying to take these concepts of thought and 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 uh, and then uh, uh, create action from them through morality, through ethics, through discussion, but also through child rearing and uh, and passing these things on to. I, uh, passing these on to a next generation of, of uh, men and women who are going to take these ideas and and create action based on the world that they live in and so on and so forth. Hopefully always holding this idea of humanity in, in, our, in our hearts, in our conversations, the idea of humanity must live because eventually we're all gonna be joined with robots. <laughs> and we, it's just good, that was a total joke. But um, eventually, it, it, there there is a, a a an advancement of human beings that I feel like all of these philosophers were honing in on, and um, and feeling things that weren't necessarily appropriate for their time, and uh, and now looking at them in the context of a world where we're buried in screens, buried in Zoom meetings, separated from human touch by social distancing these things are becoming so relevant right now, even though they're hundreds of years old, the relevancy is just teeming through um, the information that we're sharing here. So wonderful admiration and honor. Thank you. I appreciate all of it. Yeah. I mean, like, honestly, I think what, you know, to your point, it's one of the things, the unity of man is, is what I think everybody strives to, to sort of think about what unifies humans, what unifies man, and then hopefully there is something. But, you know, before we move on to the next topic, and then I, I want to say something, but David, please uh, want to get your input. I do not mean to keep cutting you off, David. So so please say something before I throw in my another two cents. <laughs> no, yeah, no, no need to worry about me. I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to, <laughs> it's okay. Um, I guess before I kind of like, I, I wanted to touch upon something that we were talking about a little bit earlier. I guess just in general, when we're kind of, um, you know, one of you mentioned like this idea of um, ultimately like accepting that, okay, like life, even though life doesn't have meaning, we can still find a way to live in it and find happiness in it like as long as you kind of like with Sisyphus as being this ideal, like absurd hero, like as long as you accept there's nothing more to life than an absurd struggle, then you can find happiness in it. Um, I guess I'm wondering like what you guys like think, okay, like, so does that mean you're kind of creating your own meaning to life? You're, you're creating your own like sense of, I don't know, what's, what's good to do, what you should do or what's bad to do and what's going to make you happy. I guess I'm just trying to better understand like what um, what it is that uh, you guys think then. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And, you know, I'm going to answer your question with a, probably a very convoluted answer. But I think, you know, first I'm going to talk about, you know, the existentialist point of view is that you create uh, meaning yourself, right? And the absurdist point of view is that that's not, not necessarily, you know, something you can do if there's no meaning, right? So you have to constantly live with that tension, but mm -hmm. you can still be happy. Now, you know, as, as to what I personally believe, you know, I'm more inclined to believe the assertism point of view than the existential point of view. And that does not necessarily, and, you know, and then to um, Dr. Binder's point from before, that, that doesn't necessarily mean I don't see beauty across, you know, nature. Uh, like, for, for one, you know, I'm, I'm 
let's just give you an example, right? I'm a huge fan of post-impressionist and impressionist art, right? And then that's, and then I think there's a beauty to that. And then Camus, if you guys, you know, got to that part in Myth of Sisyphus, uh, excuse me, Myth of Sisyphus, calls the artist uh, uh, also an absurdist hero from the way that they, you know, take this portrait and then present it proudly, despite the fact that, you know, no one will remember them moving forward. And I think, you know, it's a very, it's a very great question to have. You know, what, right before we move on to our third and final topic, right, because, you know, I don't want to keep you guys for too long. I just wanted to talk about one thing. One thing that has, you know, troubled me the most, I'd say, is from the absurdist point of view, and I've discussed this with John, and even from the existential point of view, right, and I think, you know, people may call this dramatic, right, but in, in a sense, it's not, right, right now, we may live in a time where, you know, there's not a whole lot of suffering tangential to us, right? But I think it's, you know, kind of naive to believe that what humans have been doing to each other, like, you know, war and, you know, killing each other and so forth won't come back, you know, eventually, right? But, but mm -hmm. you know, one, one of the things that I've always found hard to reconcile with existentialism, absurdism is the fact that if we assume that there's no inherent meaning to the world, that means morality is relative. So what does that say about, you know, the human ability, the human's rationale for killing one another, right? And that's pushing everything to the extreme, right? This and then is, you know, <laughs> this is a this is a big one. This is a juicy one. Yeah, like yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely. And then you know, Doctor Binder, I think you talked about it. You said, okay, well, like we shouldn't kill each other. You know, it's it's you know, we're all humans. We're all part of this beauty, right? And I think that's you know part of uh, one of Albert Camus' points. But you know, what I wanted to touch on was that you know Nietzsche doesn't explicitly say anything, um, you know against murder right he was against you know forcing your power onto somebody else in a way but you know in another way he was if you took two individuals one individual who had the capacity to murder and one individual who had no capacity to commit violence or any sort of murder you know i would think nietzsche would favor the first because he had the capacity to do so and you know i guess from our perspectives that's a little strange right because we wouldn't want to necessarily inherently favor anybody with an inclination to murder, even if they didn't murder, right, just an inclination to kill somebody else, right, and then we all have that inherent inertia towards that concept, and, you know, because I maybe prescribe more closely with absurdism than I do with any other philosophy, I had to make, you know, this reconciliation myself, and then, you know, I gave one of my favorite books to uh, John, it's called The Brothers uh, Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky, and then it, it really categorizes this issue, right, there's three brothers, one of them is a rationalist where he believes that there is no God, right, and then his name is Ivan, and then the other one, Alyosha, he uh, believes in God, right? And then Ivan spends the whole book, you know, talking about the concept that nothing unifies man. So then it would make sense if another man killed another man for his benefit, because there's, there's no inherent concept that unifies man. But in the book, he does not kill anybody. And then his whole struggle is this eternal struggle between his strictly human point of view and his strictly rational point of view. And then consequently, throughout the whole book, he uh, eventually, you know, descends into madness. While the other, his other brother Lyosha, who is uh, pious, he is able to, you know, from the perspective of any reader, right? He's objectively able to help people, right? He helps children. He saves lives, despite the fact that, you know, he's religious and it's everything, you know, uh, it's and it's antithetical to what Ivan, you know, believes is is rational. And so, 
you know, the point I'm getting to that is what I found super interesting is, you know, through the books of absurdism, the final point that I've recently read that, you know, finally jumps out to me is maybe reconciles this point of murder. Albert Camus says, because humans all live under the same human condition, right? Or a similar human condition where we strive to find meaning where there may not be any, it's, a, you know, the point of the myth of Sisyphus was to say suicide is not an option, right? Because that's antithetical to the living with absurdity that's saying you know absurdity is too much and you can't live with that uh, tension despite the fact that you know the, the the absurd hero sisyphus can right he applies that same logic with murder he says if suicide is not like a, a logical reasoning and it, it's not allowed then you cannot murder another man because you're taking away the solidarity of all humans right being unified under this uh, strict absurdism so you know that and and <laughs> not to be super long-winded but I, I really want to hear your thoughts on this right you you know, aside from let's say, you know, the Ten Commandments didn't come out, and it said, you know, and and thou shall not kill was not one of them. How, how can we reconcile that fact? And then, uh, Dr. Binder, I, I want to hear uh, your your reply first, if that's okay. Let's go. I actually I was going to ask David and John to go first. Let's okay, really yeah, that's perfectly fine. Yeah. Yes. Sure. Yeah, I, I think as I'm uh, hearing this and processing it, my my first response is if there is, you know, if the universe is a cold. Uh, irrational, you know, impersonal place. There is no objective standard to say what is right or wrong. Um, in terms of the example of murder, right? It's it reminds me of when Athens was dealing with another Greek city state and you know exerting its power over it. Of course, the other Greek city state, I forget the name, but they made a complaint, they lodged a complaint, and Athens basically responded: the strong do what they will, and the weak do what they must. Um, basically saying might makes right and of course that's kind of dissatisfying and but that's if there is no morality if there's no out force outside of finite humans to say what is right or what is wrong or like a standard to look to then i think logically after that yeah it does make sense that murder and even suicide makes sense but even before that i the question that kind of formed in my head was why is it that the unifying if the unifying factor of humanity is this absurdist struggle who's to say that you breaking that link off through murder is bad uh that seems like another standard that comes from who knows where uh from that worldview i don't know maybe there's something i'm just missing right because just because it's common just because it's a struggle that everyone else is going for you're assuming that killing someone and preventing them from, you know, eking out or eking out this absurdist battle is bad and you're valuing their freedom to do that. But then I ask, where does that value of freedom come from? Where, do, where, like, what, by what standard can we say, oh, we, our utmost standard, our utmost value is that everyone can pursue, um, you know, rebelling against absurdism or rebelling against the coldness of the universe. That's like kind of the, the way my mind is going through that. And for me, I, I think it points to something else. It keeps on pointing outside of humanity itself, uh, which obviously absurdism has takes the position, has moved past that. It already assumes that there is nothing outside of humanity, but it seems like that part that is hard to reconcile points you back out of humanity, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And before, before the others two respond, I just want to quickly address your question. Yes. And then um, I would say that, you know, how he strictly defines absurdism, right? He says that without 
humans, there is no absurdism. Without the universe, there is no absurdism. So it's an equation, right? The absurdism is what arises from the tensions of human be, uh, humans being in this earth, right? And then he says, because of that, our sh what, what our inherent nature is, is to rebel against the fact that we cannot learn why we're on this earth. And so, you know, that solidarity is shared with all humans. And he, and he says, you, and then I obviously put it less eloquently than, you know, a man who won the Nobel Prize, but you, you, you basically undermine your own solidarity through doing this. And, you know, through his, you know, lyrical, logical steps, he comes to the conclusion that, okay, if suicide is not the logical answer, because you break this equation, you break the tension, and therefore, you know, you, 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 you didn't, at the end of the day, you know, adhere to this absurdist idea. It's the same for uh, murder. And I know that probably doesn't answer your question, but uh, David and uh, Brent, you know, I want to hear your thoughts as well. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, pretty much everything that John said, I just have to agree with. Um, I mean, I think specifically when it comes to the idea of like morality being relative, like, um, I mean, again like if there's no guidelines for our actions then we're kind of left to design our own moral codes or to like kind of invent a morality to live by and we're kind of you know it, there's this whole like oh like just live authentically live be honest to yourself and be who you are but you know the problem with that is you know if we base morality purely on personal like subjective grounds then just being honest to yourself under this system then like every criminal racist unfaithful husband murderer like they're just being true to themselves and um uh bertrand russell he's a famous philosopher and mathematician and also a very well-known atheist admitted that as much as he wanted to hold to uh the subjectivity of ethics he found it really hard to believe that the only thing he could say against murder was that he happened to not like it like even this famous atheist had to admit that certain things are wrong <laughs> like in an absolute sense and that personal preference can't really be the final arbiter of like good and evil. Um, and again, like this just comes down also to the idea of like, do you believe in like a good and evil? Um, and for me, like I do, I do believe in good and evil and that's been set by a higher power. And um, in, in Paul's letter to the Romans, I think it's Romans two, he he said that like even like people who don't have the law or specifically like unbelievers basically or non-christians like when they by nature do what the law requires they are it shows that like they're the work of the law is written on their hearts and basically saying like when god created all of us he had already kind of given us this uh sense of morality and what he described as a law written on our hearts um like the sense of good and evil, that absolute what is right, what is wrong has to come from somewhere. And that's um, that's pretty much what, what I believe in. David, I'm, I'm really, really happy that you mentioned that, you know, for, for many reasons. And, you know, that's the whole struggle of this Nietzschean view of ethics and the world, right? Because for one, it's, it's incredible, it's wildly uncomfortable to not assign, you know, feelings of good or evil to anything, right? You see somebody commit, you know, what most people would consider, you know, something bad, like say they murder like a whole village or, or, or whatever, right? It's, it's a human's natural inclination to go and say, well, that man is going to, you know, burn in hell or whatever. He's, you know, not living a satisfying life. And it's just, it's really uncomfortable trying to reconcile the fact that there, you know, one might not have been reason for it. And two, there might not be any consequences beyond his death that would, 
would be upon them. And I guess, you know, the, to your point, when you said living authentically could mean, you know, wild disaster for, for a lot of people, I think where Nietzsche really dis, uh, differentiated himself from like uh, individual anarchists is the fact that, you know, he, he, he has, his, his reading is extremely complex, right? And many people smarter than I have, have failed at, at analyzing what he means, right? So just, but, you know, from, from my uh, cursory, you know, knowledge for one, a lot of his work was predicated around the thought of overcoming yourself. And, you know, a lot of people misappropriate his, his work to mean might is right, right? And, and that's not true. What he wanted, what he was criticizing was first one that you should always look to overcome yourself, right? And that, and that humans were inherently unequal. Humans, you know, have the capacity to murder and do evil things, right? So it was pointless to try to figure out why they do them. Right. But on another point, what what he said was, you know, for one, the goal was to overcome yourself. Right. And, and then that, that's you know, it's very metaphorical. It's, it's very hard to think about, you know, what what that really means. But but, you know, number two, to your point, instead of being an individual anarchist. Right. He, he really subscribed to, to the fact of, you know, there's there's some boundaries, but he, he critiqued the fact that, you know, if I if I if I use this example, right, and, and, you know, this is an example I've always mulled over, right, and, you know, I know I said we'd be moving on to another topic, but, you know, my two cents often, you know, take a while to, to dispense, but, you know, there, there's this example, like, let's say a man you know, comes into wealth, we don't know how, right, that that's not important, and then, you know, there may be societal or societal moral pressures for that man, to go and donate some of that money, right, and go save some lives. And let's say he does it because of these pressures, right? And then that's good. How could you say that him saving lives is objectively bad, right? And then what Nietzsche wanted to criticize was the fact that he did not, right, this was not him living authentically. And then to your point, you know, I'll address this point of how that could be good or bad, because inherently he did not create his own values. He subscribed to something else, right? So how could you, how can we determine what's good or bad for him or for the society, right? And he said, ultimately, you know, that's one way to look at things and it has massive implications for the whole human race in general, because it can start there and then it can end somewhere else. And, you know, that's something I've been really, really struggling to reconcile, right? And it's, it's wildly uncomfortable. You mentioned it. That would mean that we'd have to create our own values. And that's something that's, you know, incredibly difficult to do. I don't really even have a tangible grasp of what my own values are because, you know, I, I feel like I have to base things off of uh, something that's already been, you know, written in the books and so forth. But, but you know, sorry to be long-winded about this, but Dr. Binder, please, we'd like to hear your thoughts. Actually, the your last uh, your your last phrases there were by far the most important to me. When you say, "I don't know where to begin with my own set of values. I don't know what to believe unless it's been written in a book," and so the the inherent nature of this conversation, as well as the inherent nature of the human condition, uh, is being reflected right now. And and so, if it creates a, a value system in you that's fantastic if you just copy other people's value system that's great for you if you continue to just criticize or not even criticize if you continue to just um take into consideration all of the criticisms because all of the men that we've mentioned so far are known as uh, of as cultural critics and so you know criticism in itself is putting yourself uh, uh, in adverse or in uh, in an adverse position uh from anything and uh, David was very uh, is is was mentioning the anarchists who was was saying that they were uncomfortable with murder, 
John, you communicated some amazing things like how we are, we could, the words that you kept saying were who's to say. And so in those words, John, when you're saying who's to say, when you're reflecting all these different points, that's like you're, you're hitting the button of this conversation. It's just like ding, ding, ding. It's like, it's like you're, you're cashing in the coins. That is the relevance because, because who's to say is you. All of you, all of us are to say, and um, and that's that's a beautiful thing, um, and it also can exist within some people in in an extreme way, like in murder and suicide, and we can sit and debate the philosophical value of murder and suicide and how it relates to being alive, but I don't think any of you have any plans to knock someone off tonight. So eventually we have to come back to the reality of we have to get something to eat later and probably go to the bathroom and maybe make love to our partner. And then if that creates a life form that we don't have time to think about any of this anymore because there's this little baby who's now eating and, and going to the bathroom all the time. And it becomes almost a hysterical comedy of, um, of, of just trying to pour a glass of water for someone but yet still exist in this existential uh, conundrum of what the fuck is water? I mean, it's just all around us in, in, the, in the fabric of reality to question and to um, reflect and to tear it apart, to not trust it, and then to find something that goes, oh, that feels good. Or maybe murder, that doesn't feel good. That's a good example. But maybe something feels good. And so I think and feeling inherently different um, uh, functions of our neurology and of our endocrine system. And uh, it's, so it's, it's wonderful to hear this at the, at the very end going into what are, so as a practitioner and working with people one-on-one -on, -one on a daily basis, the conversation is always about um, what, what someone's eyes and what their body language are saying in their position with themselves and uh, and are they in a place where they can move forward making choices that are going to um, either equate in in more life and more beauty or they're going to equate in in uh, destruction and and some and disharmony and both of those things are relative and true for everyone you can't go through life and everything be beautiful and yay uh, some not sometimes but yeah there are times people die struggles uh, will be had you know we're all pushing the rock up in some way but at the same time Sisyphus he was also uh, being punished that was the whole point of him pushing the rock up is because he was trying to cheat death and in the end he cheats death because he's been given this sentence where he has to roll the rock up is that why he's kind of smiling the whole time like hey, hey I beat the system because now I get to push this rock up the hill you guys forgot I love pushing rocks up the hill and so um, he kind of gets away with it in the end and teaches us that how absurd it is um, that, uh, that the existence and the questions themselves keep coming up, but yet the answers possibly are right in front of us the entire time. What is the point in the meaning of life? When there's a little baby crying on, on, in the bedroom next to you, that it's pretty easy what your point and what, what the point of life is and what your meaning in life at that time is. Or like when you're sitting in front of like a stack of, um, historical geniuses who are who have who have gone down the same exact path and and we're feeling those 
that path, that tension as you play. I love tension because I love relieving tension. It's what I do. And so uh, the relief of tension is kind of like that, that satisfying feeling. It's just, it, it almost just has an expression of, ah, like you just drank some water or you just had an orgasm or you just heard an amazing guitar solo or whatever it is that you resonate with. These things become alive and they, they enrich life when you're not looking at a book. And uh, and then then you come back to the books and you're like, that's what they're talking about. Or maybe that's what they're missing. Or maybe I wish he knew about this. Or maybe that makes sense now. Whatever it is, the spectrum is endless. And that uh, that endless, infinite potential uh, that exists in the realm. And this is like would would veer off of a of a philosophical debate and more into a. um uh, I don't want to say quantum because it's too, it's just, it's too much of a, a, a cliche these days, but in a mathematical sense of possibility, um, we're looking at it right now, guys. Yeah. And, you know, I want to, I want to transition to our last topic really quickly, but you know, if you look, um, I think, you know, Dr. Vinder, what you've been saying, if you look at uh, our presentation and then, you know, for, for, for our viewers out there later, uh, one of the quotes is a single sentence will suffice for modern man. He fornicated and read the papers. Right. And then, you know, to your point, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. You know, it's absurd to think about something like that, but, that, but at the end of the day, we do have the mechanical aspects of our lives uh, to, to, to look after as well. So, you know, I, I, wonderfully put. And then, so, you know, for our last topic, very quickly before we close, I just want to talk about judgment, right? And I think what's universal behind religion and, you know, existentialism, absurdism is the form of universal guilt for humans. And, and then it's for different reasons, right? And then from the non-religious perspective, all humans are guilty because, you know, look about, look at the things that we all, you know, have the capability of doing to each other, right? And then, you know, with no inherent afterlife as a punishment, we are all consequently guilty for it. And then, you know, each one of us, right, to read another quote, each of us insists on being innocent at all costs, even if he has to accuse the whole human race in heaven itself. And then, and then another point to existentialism and absurdism and, you know, a lot of philosophies is that, you know, happiness is not, is, well, strictly not predicated on other people's concerns, right? However, you know, they, they, that, that's the only way that you're forgiven, right? If you share that success and happiness and to read the last part of the third quote, consequently, there is no escape, happy and judged or absolved and wretched. And I would, I, and I'm very curious from a religious standpoint, because if I understand correctly, judgment plays a huge role, right? And I'm wondering how you live, right? And how, how you get through the day, knowing that, you know, that there is a higher power judging you, like very detailed from everything, from your thoughts, from your actions. And, and I'm curious, <laughs> You know how, how how you live with that and how that works and please correct me if i've said anything wrong yeah that's that's a really i, I guess i'll go first huh? um that is a super deep interesting question that i think if you think about for a little too long it's it's as you said it's disturbing and it's it's troubling um <laughs> from a a christian point of view right uh we believe that yeah life is not permanent like death is certain we also believe that judgment is coming and that's because we believe in a personal moral god a holy god that sets the standard of morality and so the question is like how do you live with that knowing that you're judged and the answer is if you don't well normally the human condition we believe um the term is, is sinners right you're sinful or you're broken in some way in a moral and other aspect 
And if you don't have a, a relationship with God, right? If humanity was just left in the picture without being able to, without God reaching down to them, then you wouldn't be able to live with that. It would just be a, um, a very tragic, sad picture. And that's why I, I tend to say uh, Christianity is actually one of the most uh, pessimistic religions when it comes to its view of human nature and the plight of humanity, humanity, but also the most optimistic in the end of the story. And, and I keep on going back to this, but that's really the crux of, of a Christian faith. And that's that's Jesus Christ. And so not to, to preach from a pulpit, but just a little, I guess, like overview on, on what the thought is around that our Christian belief is that yeah, without God, like man is just broke, utterly broken and, and sinful. And that's our default state. Not to say that there, there isn't any chance or possibility of good things or beautiful things happening. Um, however, uh, the story goes is that, you know, God loved man so much that he wanted to reconcile with them. And, and, the, and the beginning of the story is that God made man to have a relationship with him. Man in his free will rejects that, right? In the Garden of Eden, they eat of the fruit. Um, or they eat the fruit that God tells them not to. They reject that relationship in God's rightful place in their lives. And that is what we now call like sin, right? And that that kind of like really wretched, really wretched state if you are judged. Um, but then the answer is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take the punishment of that judgment for us. Uh, him being the judge himself, but also the one to take the punishment we are suddenly absolved. And, and as a Christian, that's how I'd answer it. That's how I can live because I know that I've been forgiven, that I know, I know that I'm, I'm beloved no matter if I'm an extremely moral person or an extremely immoral person. And that's something that kind of defies logic, right? Because logically speaking, you know, if you were doing like game theory, you would say, oh man, this guy keeps on doing all these evil things. Like, let me not deal with him. But, but that's not the picture of God we see in the Bible. And that, that's not really the picture of God that I've experienced in my life. And so, yeah, is it a dark picture? It is. And I think, I guess, personally speaking, that is why, like, I find it as one of the, the missions in my life to, to tell people or to let them know, like, hey, there is a God out there that cares so much about you, that wants to have a personal relationship with you. And whether you know it or not right now, like your relationship with him is broken and, and the state of the proper state of your being is, is not where it should be. Um, no, yeah. yeah. No, no, that's a very laudable burden that you bear. And, you know, it's something that I, I struggle with constantly. So, so very admirable. And then, you know, uh, David and, and uh, Dr. Bender, please want to hear your thoughts. Hi, David. Yeah, I'm not sure I have too much to, to add on top of that. I think John uh, put it pretty well. Uh, and yeah, like what he said about, you know, Christians having, Christianity having kind of like this pessimistic view when it comes to uh, human nature. Yeah, it is, you know, it is pessimistic. You know, we, we believe that people are by nature sinful and broken. Um, but uh, again, the focus is not really on um the life that we have while we're here it's focused on in the end after uh life on earth um which is supposed to um last for eternity so that's where the focus lies okay dr vinder please finish us off before we uh close on this all right so uh the th the two things that i hear uh from the beginning were, were the two concepts of uh guilt and judgment and then uh david and john bringing the christian perspective of judgment into focus 
which uh, both of them uh, from my from a Catholic upbringing were, were accurate, even in terms of Catholicism. And um, <clears throat> from a psychological perspective, I know guilt uh, has a very important function as far as uh, if, if we're not born moral and we learn them, we learn morality through empathy, then guilt is a function of that. Oh, like I just fucked up and uh, now I'm going to make sure I don't do that again. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's an important concept that helps us see that we are broken in a way, or at least not perfect. And so a lot of these ideas of, that are religious um, that come handed down through tablets and scriptures, um, judging for one of them, uh, are still human concepts. And, and my own personal concept, or they're not still human concepts, but um, from, a from a biblical perspective, uh, that is the word of God. And then uh, from uh, the Quran perspective, it's the word of the prophet who was who had a relationship with God. And so we're required in a religious perspective, a religious perspective is required to uh, to assume the divinity in these concepts and uh, judgment, for example, uh, or judgment in my own experience seems uh, to be is it comes up short because uh, it, to me, it feels like. God is a is a consciousness that I can't I can't create it in my own mind except for something that's abstract um, and something that uh, is forever mysterious. I, I will never um, I will never be omnipotent in this life form that I'm in right now. This this uh, meat bag that I'm walking around in that has a brain that has an identity, this ego, I'll never be able to consciously come to the same level as God. And so to me, it seems like uh, judgment is something that occurs on a human level. And I don't, I don't, I don't personally think that if I were ever to face a, if God manifested itself as whatever in front of me, I don't think God is, has a scorecard in its hand um, because that's part of an unconditional love that I experience God as in my relationship with God. My relationship with God is based on unconditional, um, unconditional love. And so there's no judgment there. Um, I can still uh, uh, harbor guilt for things I've done in my human life form to, um, to the people around me. But it, it doesn't seem to me that if there is a God, that God would get offended by things that I'm doing because it's so far beyond the human, the human condition. And, uh, and so the idea of, of broken uh, to me translates into uh, the idea of evolving. And so in Sufis in Sufism terms, they, they speak often of, of how far you have evolved in your lifetime and in perhaps over many lifetimes and uh, and so a shaman once said to me uh, during a an, an experience known as the God realization that uh, God realization in uh, according to Paramahansa Yogananda it's, uh, who who brought a, a, a spirituality from India here to the states in the 60s and 70s um, he would talk about the the um, the, uh, this, this experience where you realize that everything is God, uh, that's the God realization. Uh, and then the self-realization, which is where you realize that you are a part of that. You are not God. As the shaman told me, you can't even pronounce the name of God. It's impossible. And you can't look at it either. And there's many Sufi, Sufi stories about 
people who have witnessed God and, and then spend the rest of their life in some kind of derelict phase with this like stare in their eye and they, and they, they can never look away. They can never unsee it, so to speak, because it's so um, immense and so different from a human experience. And so uh, I guess that's really the answer is a little bit of a contrast there into, in, from the, from my perspective, a con- it's a little bit of a, a contrast to the Christian belief, but I don't, I, but I still believe that the Christian um, but, uh, the Christian religion is so beautiful when it's practiced appropriately, like every other religion when it's practiced appropriately. And there's always going to be extremes on both sides, whereas like you could barely believe in it and not uh, and not practice, but claim it. Or you could you could practice it into an extent where, you know, people often will drag their religion into their murderous intentions, um, which is deeply philosophically troubling when you're now killing other people in the name of God. <clears throat> and so we're all mixed together. We're all, we're mixing these concepts of thoughts and feelings uh, into this, uh, into this meat bag of experiences <laughs> here that, and we have our names and we have our jobs and it's, it's, we all have this perspective of being individual of each other, but <clears throat> so do the cells on your body, in your body is trillions of cells. They all have different names and different jobs. They have no concept of that they make you as a whole same thing for how trees work in the forest with mushrooms with underground um with underground mycelium complexes you know it's present throughout light uh, throughout nature in in the way that schools of fish move and um in in the ways uh that even native americans were in tune with the way that uh with the seasons and with how they were how they were hunting how they were living um, and so it's, it's constantly coming through. And I guess to sum it up, I, I, I think that I would just say that I feel the gratitude from this conversation inside of me and knowing mm-hmm. that, um, I, it, that we have achieved a level of evolution that's very special to be able to have this conversation and to even debate this, these ideas has endless value. And, um, and we're really lucky to be able to do this because for some people, it, it, it doesn't matter to them. They never have to think about it. They're cool with just the regular flow of culture and the world that they are born in. They don't ever question it. And it's and that whole ignorance is bliss kind of thing. And we're burdened with this barrel of concepts and ideas and questions. And uh, here we are. We're, we're opening the tap to that to that barrel. And we're passing around the drinks and we're in Sufi terms, we're getting drunk off of these concepts right now, because there's a reason why a lot of um, very intelligent people end up in some kind of state of delirium is because uh, <laughs> we might not be able to rationalize our way out of this one, guys. Oh, exactly. And, and you know that I think you put it very aptly Our our, you know, this this conversation, which, you know, goes to show that, you know, humans do attempt to aspire to a level of consciousness doesn't necessarily uh, alleviate the burden right it adds the burden and you know it'll be forever debate whether or not that's consequently a good or bad thing so you know right now i want to end this so i'm going to tell you guys you know what i'm going to do so i'm going to quickly close and then i want to give uh, all three of you each an opportunity to sort of promote your own platform like obviously dr binder should have you know preface this whole conversation with this he's obviously a very well-known chiropractor 
right? And then obviously, <laughs> you, you, you know, you, 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 you'll be able to speak to that. But, you know, I wanted to thank all three of you. You know, I think it was very enlightening. I think, you know, what this goes to show is that, you know, we're, we're all sort of unified under this human condition and living with it, right? We're all not necessarily within the same ways, but we're all struggling with it, right? Just because, you know, I'm not religious and maybe Jonathan, David, and, you know, Brent, you have your own views are, then that doesn't mean that we're not able to, you know, have these sorts of conversations. So I'm, you know, immensely grateful. And, you know, I think I'm, I've learned so much and I've become incrementally more intelligent, right? And, but, you know, like I said before, I want to give, you know, each, uh, each of you an opportunity to promote your own platforms. But, you know, I hope in the future, if we're able to do this again, that, that, that we'd be able to have you. But, uh, you know, Dr. Binder, why don't you start? Why don't you tell us, you know, what's going on with your life and anything you want to promote? Um, I don't want to promote anything. I just was hanging out with you guys, having a good time. And, uh, but if you type the word chiropractic into Instagram, um, I will come up chiropractic underscore medicine. I'm going to leave my, uh, my info available. If anyone wants to shout out to me, you can look at, I do all kinds of stuff, but this is, this is outside of my professional life. However, it's, I, again, deeply valuable to me. And I think to people in general, there's, there's just endless value in these conversations. So I think, and even though this isn't what I normally do, um, if anyone's, uh, wants to get their back cracked, then you should call me. <laughs> no, good thing we, we signed on to this, this, you know, sitting inside all day with the pandemic. We, yeah, we actually, all three of us have spinal we'll issues. That, that's the only reason we set this up this way. No. <laughs> we should have okay. did it at my office then, dude. It would have been great. <laughs> okay. okay yeah yeah and then you know before david and john speak uh, i will so what happens will i will be i will have this recorded podcast and i'll you know trim some of it and then i'll also keep the raw form and obviously send it to you three so, so you don't need to worry about that but uh david why don't you go next since you are uh, next on the participants list yeah uh i'm not like an influencer by any means and i'm definitely not as popular as uh <laughs> brent here but i i do have a youtube channel that i post videos to sometimes and um some of the content there is somewhat related to you know um uh, i guess my faith as a christian i have i've posted like some christian dance videos on there that uh are have gotten pretty popular but uh, my youtube channel is david's world with a z and no space you just search david's world um but that's going to be my my main platform there jonathan why don't you <laughs> john why don't you finish us off here yeah, I don't, I don't have anything to, uh, to promote. Um, yeah, it was kind of funny. Chris put my Instagram, but I haven't used that in, in years. So <laughs> I guess it still exists. But I, I would just say, and I think everyone on this podcast would probably agree with me, is that if I were to promote anything, it's just for people to seek out and, and chase truth, whatever that truth is, with a capital T, because I think it is worth your while. I think it is the self-respecting thing to do you know if we all know that our lives are finite and that uh will expire some someday hopefully not too soon <laughs> uh then it's worth it to have conversations like this explore okay like why am i here what is the meaning of life etc cetera, etc cetera. um that's been immensely valuable to me and it's clear that it's been really valuable to everyone on this podcast i guess that's why we're here uh, besides the backpacking but yeah that's that's what i would promote and just wanted to say thank you for having us this has been really cool yeah yeah and like uh, like dr binder said we'll probably need to get something to eat and go to the bathroom right you know c come back down to reality but w once again i want to reiterate 
Um, very thankful that all of you got, I know we probably ran way over the time limit. So, so sorry if you guys had anything to do, but, but thank you for having this conversation. And if this is something that, you know, I do again in the future, you know, you, you guys are all, you know, cordially invited back if that's something you do, mm -hmm. uh, you want to do. Other than that, you know, have a good night and thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Guys. Thanks everybody. Yeah, thank yeah, you so much, care. Chris. Peace. Peace and love. Thank you. Yeah. Take Bye. Care. Bye. Bye.